Good morning. Glad that you can join with us online. So one, a book that I really enjoyed when I was growing up was The Way Things Worked. Now this was a book that described different ways, things that worked using woolly mammoths to illustrate the points. And the, it described machines as simple as wedges and levers um, or a little bit more um, natural in terms of how does light work and how does it split into different colors, all the way up to nuclear, nuclear fission when I, was, when I was reading it at least. So these mammoths illustrated it and they seemed to really help me understand how things worked. It was really just in the title with the way things work. I kind of wish the author had a theology section that would walk through some of the, of the theologies and doctrines of the church, particularly Trinity, the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity, which today we are celebrating Trinity Sunday. Because don't you just kind of hate the doctrine of the Trinity? It's really hard to explain. There's always an aspect that seems unknowable about the doctrine. It comes across either as boring or irrelevant, and yet it's a very fundamental doctrine that, that I hold, at least. I actually think it might be one of the most fundamental doctrine that I hold after I've been studying it over the last few weeks for this. And I don't know about you, but as I try and think long about the Trinity, examine how the Father, Son, and Spirit work together, are one, but are three persons, are co-equal, share in power and glory, eventually my mind turns into goo. There were a few times that I just wanted to take my computer and stick it right into my monitor because I was, I was done. It can be frustrating to try to understand how the Trinity works. And I think that's often where we go a little squirrely when we approach the idea of the Trinity. We approach it mechanically. What we really want is the Trinity to behave like a machine that we can understand. How it works, what it does, how does it tick. But how do you break down the internality of the eternal creator of the universe into a mechanical schematic? I don't think woolly mammoths will really cover this topic. But today I will not be walking through a mechanical overview of the Trinity, of how it particularly works and, and operates. Um, however, please don't be deterred from asking questions about the Trinity. There's a lot of great things that can be discovered as we ask good questions about the Trinity. If you have questions about the Trinity, please post them in the comments. There's a wealth of understanding in our community on who the Trinity is. I'm also just dropping a bit of additional content if you, in the stream, if you want to watch a fun video about the difficulties of trying to analogize the Trinity uh, and the errors that ensue. And I think one of the most beautiful ideas that surround this Trinitarian understanding of God is that God is a circle of shared life. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are fundamentally a relational being. God isn't boring, stuffy, or alone, but is rather very active, overflowing with life. So, the Trinity has always existed. The Father, and the Son, and the Spirit are all eternal. There is no beginning and no end. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit, all eternal, okay? And this means that our God is a God who always shares. Sharing in glory, sharing in power, sharing in life, sharing in joy. 
This sharing is built into the very essence and nature of who God is. One way that a few early Christian writers tried to describe the Trinity's inner workings was with the word perichoresis, simply translated as a circle dance. The Father, Son, and Spirit are dancing the great dance, sharing in the life abundant, moving, not static. And our God, we worship a God who is not far away, that isn't some being that is removed entirely from this world, a God that is in fully intangible, but rather the Trinity extended this circle outward. Because God isn't greedy or stingy with, with the good life that God has, but rather this circle is extended outward, is extended downward. The dance envelops humanity. We are caught up in the shared life of God. The first chapter of John is one of my anchoring pa- uh, chapters. I use it a lot as I, as I think and walk through Scripture. And it explains how God's shared life encompasses us in this way. John chapter 1, right, verse 1. In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through Him, and nothing was created except through Him. The Word gave life to everything that was created, and His life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. When God entered into our time as one of us, God became human. And not, not just in the, in the past did God become human, but this also means that in the future, God is eternally human. When Jesus ascended, he remained human. And now, God will always be human. Or to put it another way, if you continue reading on in John chapter 1 to verse 14, so the word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And we have seen this glory, the glory of the Father, uh, the Father's one and only Son. John testified about him when he shouted to the crowds, this is the one I was talking about when I said, someone is coming after me who is far greater than I am, for he existed long before me. From his abundance, we have all received one gracious blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses, But God's unfailing love and faithfulness came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the unique one, who is himself God, is near to the Father's heart. He has revealed God to us. From the abundance of God's shared life, we receive blessing after blessing. This stems from the very center of God's being. God is a God who shares. And God doesn't hide the good stuff for later, but rather shares their life with us now. We believe this because something significantly shifted with God putting on flesh, living as one of us, dying on the cross, rising from the dead, and ascending to heaven. Humanity has been united with God. Athanasius of Alexandria in the 4th century summed up that the purpose of the Lord's incarnation was that he should join what it is man by nature to him who is by nature God. There's a beautiful scandal that occurred with Jesus. Nothing ever stays the same when God acts. When God responds, there is transformation. What do you think changed when God became human? Romans 5, 15 to 21 explains the exchange this way. But the gracious gift is not like the offense. For if by the offense of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, 
For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one offense, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the gracious gift arose from many offenses, resulting in justification. For if by the offense of the one, death reigned through the one, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Paul continues on. So then, as the one offense, the result was condemnation to all of humanity, so also through one act of righteousness, the result was justification of life to all of humanity. For as though the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the offense would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, so also grace would reign through the righteous to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. When God took on flesh, our very nature took a change. Because God became human. How can our humanity exist in the same manner as before after this beautiful act of love and grace? Uh, Baxter Kruger explains it this way. Once we see with John and Paul in the early church that the incarnation was a real incarnation that the Son of God became flesh without giving up his fellowship with his Father, then we are face to face with a paradox that will allow us to see the truth about the work of Christ. In Jesus Christ, a union is forged between two things that do not go together. On the one side, you have the triune life of God with all of its face-to-face fellowship and purity and fullness and joy and rightness and integrity. On the other side, you have human existence and all of its hiding brokenness, corruption, disease, and perversion. The incarnation means that these two worlds are united. In Jesus Christ, the joyful fellowship of the Father, Son, and Spirit, the wholeness and purity of the Trinity, meets Adam, fearful and ashamed and hiding in the bushes. How is this possible? The answer is that it is not possible. Something has to give. Something has to change. There has to be a conversion, a transformation, a fundamental reordering, a real reconciliation. And that is exactly what happened in Jesus' life, death and resurrection. Adam and fallen Adamic human existence got turned around, converted, fundamentally reordered, healed, crucified, and born again. So this entering into humanity didn't break God. It didn't ruin the Trinity. It didn't tarnish the holiness of, of, of the triune God. There was no need for a contamination zone to protect God's holiness. God is too great to need one. Rather, Jesus, Son of God, and from Adam's seed, lives forever, and the ruination of Adam's sin has been healed. And we are made right with God, who is human also. Our humanness is now redeemed, and with this knowledge, how can we continue to ignore this truth? Right now, what we think to be our simple, ordinary lives are really not all that ordinary at all. We have been embraced by God. We are already in the circle, the shared life of God. The circle has come to us. You're you're in the middle of a dance, but can you hear the music? Can you feel the beat? Are you swept up in the movement? Paul pleads in Romans chapter 12, And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behaviors and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. 
Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. There are so many, many ways that the world seems to blur our vision of what this shared life looks like. The reality is, is that God's shared life is all around you. God is at work. The beautiful thing is that God is asking you right now to join in on this good life. Can you hear it? Can you feel the rhythm? Have you caught, have you caught the beat? Maybe you can't figure out right now where, where this life is. It might be helpful to think back. When was the last time you felt alive? Maybe in that experience, there might be some breadcrumbs that you, that you can follow back to, back to where the shared life might be. And if, the tr- if that trail has gone cruel, cold, if the breadcrumbs can't be found, no worries. You weren't made to do this alone. As I contemplate more about the Trinity, the more I become convinced that sharedness is a big missing piece in our lives. We actually were created to live this life together, and yet we work so hard to be self-reliant, fully independent. I want to be a person that does not need others. And yet, the, the, the truth of it all is, I need you, and I need God. Jesus claims that one cannot enter the kingdom of God unless they are a child. When Jesus is saying this, he is basically saying that unless we recognize that we need and are bound to each other, that we need to give and receive love, give and receive care, and give and receive friendship, we can never really enter into this shared life. Because if we refuse to do this together, we have refused the very nature of the shared life of God. I don't know about you, but probably like 95% of the time, I think that transformation, the transformation that God wants for me is to be a superhuman, someone who becomes more and more competent, more and more spiritual, more and more independent, and more and more useful. Someone who can really, really make a difference. Someone who is really, really holy. I actually don't think that's the thrust of Scripture, the way that Scripture is pointing us towards. If we go back to Jesus calling us as a child, I think that's actually where we see transformation happen. Think of the image of a mother holding a child. Just as the God of the universe came as a baby who was carried by his mother, so shall our transformation take place, resting in the arms of God, our mother. Our transformation doesn't come out of us piecing together the scraps of this world, but comes from simply existing with God being held and cared for, and then reciprocating this care. As we dance the dance, we reciprocate friendship, we reciprocate love and care, and we find that it will lead us into both great joy, and unfortunately, this will also lead us into great sorrow. Great joy because despite it all, we are being held by the triune God, and there is still much joy to be found. And great sorrow because the dance, the shared life still dances during the horrors of this world. And I've been rocked by these horrors this week. This week, a mass grave of 215 children, some as young as three years old, was discovered in BC. 215 children. This was the church's operation, working with the Canadian state to eradicate indigenous children. The church made this. This grave 
the blood of these children is on the hands of the church. Where is the triune God in this? Where is the great dance? We often try to run away from the horror. Frame this away from our own responsibility. It's in the past. It's not our denomination. It's not in our part of the country. We try to run and hide from the knowledge that we are collectively responsible for this and for its continuation. Politicians and others in Canada will continue to frame this as it's something in the past. It's not. Though residential schools closed in 1996, yes, that's 1996. That's not that long ago. Though the residential school system has closed, there is still much work at trying to kill the indigenous people that are in Canada. Did you know that there have been forced sterilizations of indigenous women in Canada as late as 2014? Possibly even past then? Also, the coming out this month, there was an allegation that over the past 10 years, BC social workers have had indigenous girls as young as 10, 10 years old, forced to have IUDs inserted by doctors. Do you know there's a disproportionate number of our community living in poverty here in Guelph who are indigenous? So where is the sharedness of the triune God in this? I don't know. I really don't know. But something I do know is that where God is, transformation happens. And God is with us. He is with you. I also know this. God, into, into, God entered into our mess, shares in our horrors, and asks us to enter into others' mess and share in their horrors. Where I often encounter the triune God is right here at RCM and sharing life, both the good and the bad, with our community members. And, it have, and often it is the community members that have fallen through the cracks that society has forgotten or that are on, on the receiving end of genocide by the state, that God's light shines the brightest through. The call of the shared life isn't an easy call. The dance is pretty difficult at times. But God is there inside the dance calling you. There can be joy found in the deepest sorrow. May your presence journey into the dark, into the darkest parts of this world. May you journey into sorrow. And on your journey, may God's light envelop you and carry you through. Amen.